0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.
1: Welcome, everyone, to uh, the uh, breakout panel discussion, um, uh, hopefully entitled After the Arab Spring. Uh, I'm delighted. I'm Charlie Reese, uh, Vice President for International here at RAND, um, and I'm delighted to moderate this panel. Uh, Whenever you uh, agree to do one of these things, you know that however you think about it ahead of time, the news of the day will often um, uh, capture you, and I think that this panel will be uh, uh, no exception. Uh, First of all, I want to introduce the panel and uh, start with saying that Carolyn Dries, who is uh, with Reuters and uh, Reuters uh, head of news and uh, and operations in the Middle East, based in Beirut, w- is not able to join us uh, for probably understandable reasons uh, uh, related to the uh, uh, current events that we'll get into. But we've been, we're delighted uh, that David Rohde has been uh, mustered to step in in uh, uh, quite a uh, – uh, a, a substitute he is, a uh, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, a uh, columnist now for Reuters, a uh, reporter famously for the New York Times, uh, Christian Science Monitor, uh, and is working uh, on a new book called Beyond War, re- Reimagining American Influence in a New Middle East. Uh, couldn't be more timely. Uh, you may be constantly revising it as, uh, as the months uh, months come on. Uh, also uh, on the panel is uh, Karen Elliott House, um, uh, former publisher uh, and senior uh, of Wall Street Journal and senior vice president of Dow Jones, uh, well known to those of us at RAND as uh, as uh, presently the vice chairman of the board of trustees. Uh, also, Pulitzer Prize winner uh, for her coverage of the Middle East uh, in the 1980s, and also has a new book uh, just published uh, on Saudi Arabia: its people, past, religion, fault lines, and future if I've got it all right. Long title. Long title. Long title. Uh, (laughs) uh, And finally, uh, Ali Nader. Ali uh, uh, works with me at RAND. He's a senior international policy analyst. Uh, He is our lead analyst on Iran, uh, co-author of a number of books, the most recent of which is Coping with Nuclearizing Iran, uh, and uh, he is often quoted in the New York Times, a uh, frequent guest on the news Hour, and an uh, uh, all round expert on things Iranian uh, in the new Middle East. So uh, I think without further ado, we'll sort of plunge into um, uh, a conversation about what's going on uh, in, the, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and I'd like to start uh, with David and with the situation uh, between Israel and Gaza right now, um, uh, when the Arab Spring happened, uh, starting with the uh, 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 Boazizi self-immolation in Tunisia and then spreading to to Egypt and other places, one of the frequent observations was, first of all, it wasn't about the U.S. and the U.S. uh, presence in the Middle East, and second, it wasn't actually about uh, Israel-Palestine, uh, didn't seem to be at that time. So uh, we're now uh, two years, almost two years into after the Arab Spring, if you uh, uh, date the thing in, in December. How would you, I mean, how, how do we look at the present conflict uh, uh, between uh, Israel and Hamas in Gaza uh, is it different? Is it fundamentally different from two thousand and eight and, and before as a result of the Arab Spring? does the Arab Spring complicate things? Uh, does change in Egypt complicate things? Give us a sense of of how this is different this time and and, and what the prognosis may be
2: i 'm um, not sure why. Uh you know, things are unfolding as they are. The latest, and maybe you're aware of this, but that this morning um, Hamas fired uh, two missiles at Jerusalem, um, which hasn't occurred in decades. Um, it was always seen as sort of off-limits. Even Saddam Hussein during the Gulf War sort of avoided targeting Jerusalem because it's, it's such a mixed city religiously and such a symbol. So clearly Hamas is, is escalating. Um, and we can talk more about how this started and it wasn't as really strike that started it. But I think Hamas is testing the new Middle East and, and the post-Arab Spring Middle East. And, and stuck in the middle of all this is uh, uh, President Morsi of Egypt. Um, Hamas feels that now with all these uh, dictators out of power, they have much more popular support in the region, um, and they have Egypt in a sense behind them. And, and uh, that's the only way I can explain kind of the level of, of what's happened so far today. Uh, there was a second, uh, again, were, no one was hurt, but there were missiles fired for a second day at Tel Aviv uh, as well um, so far today. Uh, apparently they landed in the sea, but again, this is considering that this is coming just after a visit to Gaza by the new Egyptian, um, prime minister, which was an effort by Morsi, I think to try to, you know, create a ceasefire that clearly didn't hold. Um, it's very provocative by Hamas. Um, and I, I'll sort of keep this short. I, I, I hope that they're overplaying their hand. Um, I think they're playing a very dangerous game uh, in Egypt. Morsi's in a very difficult position. Um, he's got, you know, there's tremendous popular anger at Israel. The, all of this footage is just going to roil that up. Um, the Salafists um, in Egypt are already attacking Morsi, saying he's not being strong enough. Um, you know, they'll put, they'll be tremendous pressure on Egypt about what, what, you know, what will it do? Um, surprisingly, since he took power, Morsi has been pretty strict on Gaza. He's disappointed Hamas, according to the news reports I've read. He's been as tough or tougher than Mubarak in terms of blowing up the tunnels and limiting the smuggling. Um, the, the, the game, the long-term plan, a game plan for Morsi, seems to be he was trying to kind of just hold Gaza together, um, get the Western aid he needs um, to kind of get the Egyptian economy going, because he knows that's his Achilles heel um, but this is now kind of, you know, blown everything up, um, and, and I, I do not know how this is going to play out.
1: Do you, so, so you would interpret what's happening as it's between Israel and Hamas, but it's also really all about Morsi and Morsi's position.
2: I think, I mean, and, and please disagree with me, and I'm eager to hear your questions. Uh, he is the figurehead, the kind of symbol of what has changed in the region, the, the shift from Mubarak to Morsi. And, and um, you know, will the Brotherhood back Hamas? And the Israelis are testing him as well. That's just in the latest story I was just reading on my phone from the New York Times, that the Israelis want to see how aggressively Morsi will um, support the peace treaty, and Hamas is testing Morsi to see how much he'll support them.
1: And uh, one last question on this. How relevant is the United States in all of this uh, uh, balance?
2: I I think— uh, less relevant than it would have been, uh, I think under the Mubarak regime, but I think the signals from Washington will be watched very closely by all sides and,
1: and can uh, how are the people uh, how how do you think the region is interpreting what Washington has done thus far?
2: I think the assumption will be that the u s is just backing Israel wholeheartedly um, and uh, um, you know and even what's whatever statements come out of Washington, there'll be just tremendous um, suspicion. Most Egyptians, according to public opinion polls, don't feel that uh, Obama did enough in ousting Mubarak. He was seen as too cautious, which might seem contradictory or not, you know, make much sense, but that is the perception. So, so Obama, you know, is seen as kind of too cautious and too pro-Israel, you know, by the Egyptian public.
1: Great, thanks. Let me um, shift uh, shift the the lens just a little bit uh, and ask Ali to talk about. The Iranians, um, uh, first of all, do you think Hamas's moves – I mean, Hamas famously has moved out of Damascus, has put some distance between themselves uh, and, uh, and, and, and their Iranian uh, sort of supporters uh, uh, because of uh, Sunni objections to the Assad regime. Uh, So do you think that uh, Iran is less involved in this than it might have been previously? I think
3: that's a a good question and goes to your initial question about the Palestinian issue. When uh, their Arab uprisings broke out, uh, the common perception, especially in the United States, was that it doesn't really have anything to do with us, doesn't have a lot to do with Israel or the Palestinian issue. But I think the Palestinian issue is still very relevant to what's happening in the Middle East. And when you look at the different countries uh, and the Muslim populations, whether they're Sunni or Shia, uh, there's deep empathy for the Palestinians. But also, it's a major political issue. And I think uh, the different countries and powers use the Palestinian issue for leverage in the region. Uh, And Iran uh, is definitely uh, one case. Uh, Over the years, uh, Iran uh, was able to take advantage of the Palestinian issue, uh, to increase its influence in the Middle East. It uh, appealed to this uh, sense of Arab angst um, that uh, nothing was being solved, that the Arab world was living under it- authoritarian regimes backed by the United States. And Iran, being Persian and Shia, saw um, backing the Palestinians, <coughs> a lot of times militarily, as basically a point of leverage. Uh, But given what's happened in the last couple of years, Iran has actually lost a lot of influence uh, to a number of other countries, uh, especially uh, Turkey, but even Qatar uh, on the Palestinian issue, and also Egypt. Uh, And we've seen uh, Hamas distance itself from Damascus, and in some ways it has distanced itself from Tehran as well. Uh, The Iranians haven't been very happy uh, with Hamas. There have been reports that uh, funding to Hamas has been uh, cut back. Uh, And Iran was one of the primary funders of Hamas. Uh, Hamas hasn't completely distanced itself from Tehran. I don't think that would be a smart policy uh, because it still receives uh, some support. But the indications are that Hamas doesn't need Iran as much anymore. Uh, The Muslim Brotherhood is in power in Egypt. Uh, Hamas has established relations with Turkey. Uh, The uh, Amir of Qatar was just there. And Actually, Hamas and the Gaza Strip are no longer very isolated uh, actually, I think this is their moment in the spotlight, and so far, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran has been the loser in all of this
1: mm-hmm. so Karen, uh, can we uh, just stay on this uh, on this particular thing one more one more round the uh, as as Ali recalled the visit of the Emir of Qatar uh, a month ago. Uh, his commitment of $400 million for Hamas and development uh, in the Gaza Strip. And uh, uh, this, the, the where are the monarchies of the GCC, uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, UAE, in all of this? And what kinds of issues does this pose for them? Uh, this renewed. Uh, this being the. This Arab hot fighting Israeli. at the moment, yeah, right? Arab, Israeli, and.
4: I don't think any of those countries like to see this kind of activity mm-hmm. because as Ali says they're accustomed to using the Palestinian issue, if you will, against the Americans and for themselves and when you're when you have this <clears throat> this kind of level of activity you actually have to do something. Mm-hmm. Um I mean I'm personally of the view that we we are seen as weak and increasingly irrelevant ourselves the us in the middle east um and it is going to put pressure on the the arab countries themselves to take more responsibility for what goes on in that part of the world and i personally think that's good
1: well, do you think these countries are ready to take responsibility? No, yeah.
4: but they'll have to step up and do it mm-hmm. because we don't seem to be doing it anymore. Right. And right. they live out there.
1: Right, <clears throat> right. Um, do you think that uh, uh, the if this were five or seven years ago, the attention uh, in uh, the West would be to uh, – uh, Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya somehow a major factor in this sort of, kind of uh, excitement, uh, political excitement, and, and impacts of this is uh, is that's that still the case, or is social media and all these other um, uh, uh, new communications technologies sort of changed the dynamic? It's no longer just about satellite television. I mean,
4: yeah, it's clearly no longer just about satellite television i mean that uh you know that's one of the amazing changes in the 30 plus years i've gone out there you used to go to saudi arabia uh, and you could see saudi tv which basically had no news on it now you can be in any country out there and see american tv egyptian saudi pakistani everything but you can also young people are clearly communicating in all kinds of ways that are not dependent on satellite TV.
1: What uh, Eric Schultz said, uh, Schmidt said last night was sort of user generated content, right? Ninety mm-hmm. percent was quite uh, sobering.
4: <clears throat> I'm not sure that enhances the factual information people <laughs> have, but it <laughs> certainly enhances the communication.
1: Yeah. Um, I wanted to turn a little bit to syria um which what we thought would we 'd start with uh, uh earlier um, uh, last week when we were talking about this panel and um uh, the, the news last week was the, uh, or was it earlier this week? I've lost track of time. Uh, was the significance of the so-called unity deal of the opposition and the, particularly the selection of uh, Sheikh uh, uh, Moaz al-Khatib as the, as the titular head of the Syrian opposition, which is as a result of these Doha meetings, supposedly more. Collaborative, or at least linked into uh, the uh, uh, opposition on the ground or the rev- revolutionaries in, within Syria. Uh, David, how do you interpret this? Is this is this as significant as it has been, uh, uh, as it appears? And the French are talking about possibly recognizing this uh, force and maybe even supplying them with arms. Uh, does this change the situation on the ground in Syria, which seemed to be drifting towards stalemate?
2: Um, I think it depends on whether it leads to more arms coming in which, and you know, whether that's the right or wrong decision is a separate conversation. Um, it, it was drifting towards stalemate, um, and hopefully this will, you know, create more control over the Syrian opposition. The other trend that's happening here is that the opposition has been losing some support because of executions that have occurred and other abuses, and those seem to be growing and growing, and this sort of classic dynamic of kind of just general lawlessness and criminality mm-hmm. kind of spreading across Syria— there has not, in a sense, Assad has won because there wasn't a sort of decisive and quick victory. And as this drags on, it's just sort of his, the, you know, the worst case scenario for Alawites of just pure sectarian war, pure chaos, pure criminality, Iraq all over again, you know, seems to be coming, you know, true. Um, but I I don't see, a sh- there's clearly no shift, um, you know, you saw that in President Obama's press conference. The U.S., I don't think is going to be doing anything else in Syria. Um, uh, maybe the French would arm the opposition, but I don't see anyone sort of stepping up to kind of change this dynamic. Um, it's a step forward that they have this new um, leadership in the opposition, but I, it, to me, it just seems to be this—you know—this the crisis will continue, the bloodletting will continue, and this new—you know—fighting between Hamas and Israel will distract attention from it.
1: So it will—the it, fighting will continue, but more in the background.
2: Yes, it's not a game changer. I think the name not a game of, changer of these new. This new opposition people is, oh. is my
1: sense, uh, Ali. We we have uh, uh, gone from uh, an election in the United States to an election in Israel, and there is in coming up uh, uh, an election in Iran in June. And you've talked um, uh, on other occasions, I know, about a window uh, for a possible resolution of the nuclear file, or some, at least some sort of interim. Uh, deal on the, on the uh, Iran file and, and a window for that between now and June uh, and the, the election that will replace uh, President Ahmad Nijad. Could you speak to that a little bit?
3: Uh, sure. We've seen sanctions take a, a huge negative effect on the Iranian economy and I think this has forced the leadership in Tehran to recognize that it is time to take negotiations much more seriously. Uh, in recent days, especially, a lot of conservatives uh, have talked about engaging the United States and even uh, repairing Iran's relations uh, with the United States. Uh, uh, Javad Larajani, uh, who is the brother of the parliamentary speaker, Ali Larajani even said that um, we'll we'll negotiate with the United States if, even if we have to do it in the depths of hell. If it, Uh, benefits the Islamic Republic. This is something we're willing to do. And the major reason for this is that the Iranian government is running out of money. Um, Its oil exports are decreasing. Um, It's not clear how much foreign exchange reserve Tehran has. Uh, Official estimates, uh, 100 billion, it could be less. So in a year or two, uh, Tehran will have to confront uh, the fact that it may not be able to keep the system together financially. And so... I think there's an opportunity now that the U.S. election is over and uh, the Iranians know who they're negotiating with, uh, that the two sides uh, will sit down, not necessarily resolve all their issues because I don't see the Islamic Republic uh, being ever able to really repair its relations uh, with the United States, Uh, but to diffuse uh, tensions over the nuclear program uh, because uh, neither side really wants a military conflict. Um, not the United States and not uh, Iran. The presidential election in Iran is in June. Um, Ahmadinejad is basically a lame duck right now. Uh, he could be disruptive as he uh, tends to be. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, there is this window uh, in which uh, Tehran will be able to focus on negotiations. If If the presidential election is disruptive, if there are internal disturbances in Iran, like in 2009, it will be more difficult uh, for the Islamic Republic to really engage uh, the P5 plus 1, the UN Security Council plus Germany. So I I wouldn't say that the window closes after June, but we have a a good opportunity right now uh, to try to diffuse tensions. And that's
1: because the president is really irrelevant to these decisions, and
3: there's a risk of...
1: Of another 2009 Green Revolution yeah. type period after the election, no matter
3: who wins, and, and th- that is one of the reasons. But also in Iran, there's a lot of infighting about um, negotiating with the United States. The different sides don't want to uh, want, don't want their rivals to claim credit if there is success with the United States if sanctions are lifted. So if Ahmadinejad claims credit for it. Uh, the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei will not be happy. The Larajani brothers will not be happy if the deal takes place under Ahmadinejad and he claims credit for it. He, the deal, A deal can happen while Ahmadinejad is president, and the system in Iran can do things to make sure he is not seen as a winner. Because when we look at Iran, there is uh, a major uh, cleavage between the ruling elite, uh, Kind of cleavage we haven't seen, kind of divisions we haven't seen since 1979, since the Islamic Revolution. So the nuclear issue, uh, negotiating with the United States, Iran's position in the Middle East, uh, especially after the Arab uprisings, is very much a part of domestic politics in Iran.
1: Do you, uh, first of all, I consider it a good, good sign that uh, people in Iran think that there are political benefits to be done, uh, in, uh, to be obtained in a deal with the United States. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a step forward, I guess, and perhaps a heartening one. Is the uh, Do you think the impression in the region uh, and in Iran in particular is that the risk of an attack to stop the nuclear program, uh, red line, whatever, uh, has receded after the American election or because Israel is now distracted with this other thing? Uh, how has how, how that all uh, uh, run through the Iranian optic? The,
3: the risk is still there of an Israeli military strike, but there have been indications from Israel that uh, the leadership, including Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Defense Minister Ehud Barak, are willing to uh, give sanctions more time because sanctions have been so successful in damaging Iran's economy. Nobody really predicted even a year ago that sanctions against a central bank And the European oil export would have such a devastating effect on the Iranian economy. Uh, So I think that has given the United States space to diplomatically engage Iran. But uh, at the same time, if there are no indications of uh, negotiations achieving some sort of success, then the U.S. government is going to face a lot of pressure uh, from the Israeli leadership but also – uh, from specific groups in the United States to uh, seriously consider the military option hmm. uh, Karen,
1: can we turn to the other side of the uh, of the Gulf and uh, e- your book, uh, pointed out a lot of the sort of forces that, that are at play in the kingdom in Saudi Arabia in particular, but also apply to other GCC members in, in varying ways. Uh, the news recently uh, recorded that the king has chosen uh, Prince Mohammed uh, bin Naif as minister of interior. He's of a different generation. I wonder if you could explain the significance of that appointment and, and what that might mean towards the prospect of internal reform and generational change in the, in the Saudi monarchy.
4: I personally thought that was a, a a good step forward to get some younger generation members. The Saudi royal family has any number of educated, intelligent, experienced grandsons of the founder, but um, as the line of brothers diminishes and each gets older, um, there simply isn't the energy level that is in from listening to Saudis that they believe is needed to make uh, things happen uh, in the kingdom. So getting to a position where someone um, could be ruler and rule for a period of time um, with energy, um, I think is a, uh, is a good sign. Now, how much that causes as a lot of people fear envy among other grandsons and you know i don't know but i well, think does, they need a younger more energetic does this leadership
1: prince Mohammed, sort of first among equals of that generation and what, give us a little bit of a sense of his background where did he come from what 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 are his accomplishments thus far
4: well he's uh very well known to the americans i would assume though i haven't actually uh, asked anybody in the administration that you know the american government is happy to see that because he's he's well known as the individual who has worked with the americans on uh counterterrorism uh since 9 one he's 52 or three years old so he's uh, he speaks good english um I've met him. He's, uh, and if you talk to the people that have been through their terrorist rehabilitation program, you know, they all say, I mean, he said this of himself, but they confirm that, you know, when they arrive back from Guantanamo or wherever, uh, Prince Mohammed meets you at the airport and says, in essence, you're born today, forget the past. Um, They try to treat terrorists as victims of some. Virus, if you will, not—it's not really their fault. Um, you can be rehabilitated; we all is forgiven. And the thing that interested me most about visiting the counterterrorism and uh, Prince Mohammed was that in that um, rehabilitation program, they do for these terrorists what they don't do for the society as a whole. Uh, They are encouraged. They provide athletic facilities, libraries. They encourage them to talk, to say what they think, to discuss both with clerics and with psychologists and psychiatrists. They have art lessons where the terrorist is asked to draw, and they have a, a University of Pennsylvania Ph.D., uh, graduate who interprets the art. He's very interesting in telling you what different uh, guys' frame of mind is. But it's an encouragement to, to these people to actually think and examine themselves and their society in a way that the average Saudi is not encouraged to do. Mm. So that was another of my uh, views after visiting that. If If more time was spent encouraging the whole of society... To think and reflect and um, um, take responsibility for their lives uh-huh. and um, and future that the whole kingdom would be better off. Uh,
1: speaking of the kingdom, um, uh, it, as I understand it, the, in Egypt and in Libya and Tunisia, countries in transition, there has been um, a certain amount of... Uh, grumbling about uh, the uh, availability of finance and support from the Gulf countries uh, after the revolutions, after the transition, change of governments. Uh, you know, it's it's hard from the outside to judge how much was promised or how much was suggested, and how much the sort of the uh, 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 diminished, ex- uh, the 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 how how much disappointment is is, is legitimate, but viewed from the gulf what is their attitude about transition in egypt transition in, in tunisia and libya and how much are they willing to put their own uh, foreign policy and resources to uh, to help the success of say morsi who we were talking about earlier
4: my impression again from talking to people is that a lot of money is promised and some is delivered but then a lot of money is also going to all kinds of other groups in Egypt and um, and obviously in Syria and all around the Middle East. The Gulf countries, um, Saudi Arabia, the, Qatar, have money, and they choose to try to buy friends in right. every country.
1: I have to say it's came. a little bit like the attitude of the Iranians in Iraq. They support a lot of different mm-hmm. horses in case mm-hmm. one might win.
4: Yeah, you never know who's going to uh-huh. cross the finish line, uh-huh. so you... You have a rider on every horse.
1: Oh. Uh, d- David! Before we th- throw it open to the to the audience for uh, questions and comments, uh, could you talk a little bit about the uh, the feared uh, uh, implications of of? of a metastasizing Syria conflict outside of Syria, the impact on Jordan, the impact on Lebanon, the impact for that matter on Turkey and the Kurds and so forth. Could, uh, help us understand that a little bit. What? To, what? Wh- how bad can it be?
2: Um, I was in uh, Turkey this spring, um, and at that point um, Erdogan's kind of aggressiveness towards Syria was pretty popular. But since then I've been reading that there's more and more frustration, particularly from this kind of new and more powerful um, Turkish business class, that they see this conflict as getting worse and worse. Uh, it's about 120,000 refugees now in Turkey. And the real fear and, and the subtext of all this in Turkey um, is the Kurdish issue and that what Assad is doing is sort of playing the, uh, the Kurdish card to sort of Turkey's soft right. um, underbelly as a way to kind of push back as, uh, as Turkey has, um, has, has supported the opposition and you see these, you know, and then in Lebanon, you've got clear violence, kidnappings, everything else um, going on as result well to the conflict. And now this instability in Jordan is technically separate, but I think related to this, this tensions, it's, it is, it does put stress on these countries when you have all these refugees coming in. Um, and the primary concern, at least for Turks was, you know, Turkey's continued economic growth and um, all politics is local. So I, I guess, and I'm just sort of thinking out loud here, this is another sign of how Assad is kind of gaming this out and and succeeding in some ways um, because you know he is it is creating instability in the region. Uh, there isn't a decisive military victory for the opposition. The West is holding back on arming the opposition. Um, it's, I don't see how he survives in the long term, but he's certainly bringing everybody down with him.
1: Hmm. Uh, and Ali, um, one of the big. S- sort of specters of uh, that, that worries people looking at the region after the Arab Spring and in light of all of these uh, developments, particularly in Syria, is that there will be some broader Shia-Sunni conflict uh, in the region uh, over policy. What do the Iranians think about that? Do they sort of, are they in the bring it on, you know, uh, Shia downtrodden, we need to help the, the Shia, and, and, and they welcome that dynamic, or do they
3: have some uh, countervailing concerns? Now, I, I think there's already a shia sunni conflict in the Middle East, and what's going on in terms of the so-called Arab Spring, uh, when you look at Egypt, th- to the east of Egypt, not so much North Africa, uh, it's a conflict between the Shia and the Sunni. You know, the, ma- the major competition is between Iran and Saudi Arabia, And we we see that competition everywhere, whether it's in the Persian Gulf, in Bahrain, in Iraq, in Syria, everywhere, even in Afghanistan. Uh, So that conflict is already taking place. Uh, And I think in a lot of ways it's bad news for Tehran because the Islamic Republic has always tried to portray itself as uh, the leader of all Muslims. There's Mm -hmm. a tendency in Iran to downplay the difference between the Shia and Sunni. Now, never mind that there isn't a single Sunni mosque in Tehran. Uh, But uh, the Islamic Republic doesn't want to be seen as just helping the Shias in Iraq or Bahrain or even Syria. Um, It wants to be seen as a leader of the uh, entire Muslim Middle East. But uh, increasingly, the Arab world is viewing Iran as favoring sectarian politics. Uh, For example, even Hezbollah, Uh, which has very close ties to Iran, is very sensitive about uh, being seen as an Iranian proxy. They want to emphasize their Arabness, uh, their role as a political player in Lebanon rather than a Shia party with ties to Tehran. Uh, So I think we are very much witnessing uh, the religious wars in the Middle East that have been really taking place uh, for a very long time uh, but with the conflict in Syria, I think uh, this is really the apex of that conflict between the Sunni and the Shia. It's really all out on the table. Well, speaking out on the table, I'm going to uh, turn it up over
1: to the audience to ask some questions and, and help this discussion along. Please.
0: So, what's the danger that Hezbollah will decide to sort of light the fires up in the northern end with Israel and then force a two front conflict almost
3: immediately? So th- one of the possibilities is if that Israel attacks uh, Iran, Hezbollah will retaliate by uh, shooting thousands of missiles uh, into Israeli cities. Uh, Iran has uh, even provided missiles can, that can uh, reach Tel Aviv and the Dimona uh, nuclear reactor. Hezbollah recently sent an Iranian-made drone into Israeli territory. Uh, but I, I think there's certain constraints on Hezbollah. Um, Uh, The leader of Hezbollah, Nasrallah, has said that if Israel uh, attacks uh, Iran, we will respond automatically. And I think a few weeks later he said if Israel attacks Iran, we will not respond automatically. I think he hopes that Israel will not attack Iran and Hezbollah will not have to do anything about it because Hezbollah increasingly is in a very difficult position. It it has uh, backed the Bashar al-Assad regime. Uh, It is seen as a sectarian uh, party in Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon itself is very unstable. And so if uh, Hezbollah decides to attack Israel, uh, it will be seen as doing Iran's bidding. But also the Israelis have basically indicated that they're going to flatten Lebanon if there's an attack on them. So Hezbollah, to a large extent, is deterred uh, by uh, Israel's military Power and also the regional uh, and local dynamics in Lebanon, having said that it could happen you know one one hezbollah katyusha landing uh, in northern Israel can set off uh, wider conflict Your Highness
0: Thank you good morning on um, reflecting on Hamas and, and Israel and, and Egypt and so on um, I've noticed that as events occur in that place, everybody takes them from that time on forward rather than looking at background. And I think issues of provocation and testing have been going on uh, for some time in uh, in the area. So this recent uh, round of, of, of conflict is is not as per se. <coughs> Uh, Hamas testing Morsi or Israel testing Morsi or Morsi testing his viability in the Arab world, or the uh, the uh, Salafis testing Morsi, etc. But I think it's a, it's a reflection of the fact that there is no peace in in the area. Uh, there is no hope for peace. The process that was adopted by the United States, particularly since 1969. Uh, the rogers plan seems to have come to an end and uh, nothing is is in in its place uh, so that's just one reflection on how i think we should look at the issue of what is happening to the not simply as uh, hamas testing its israel or otherwise on iran i think there is also a question of of uh, two facts uh, one is that in the in the area and as elsewhere Uh, There are unchangeable issues. History is unchangeable. The other thing that is unchangeable is geography. Uh, So whether we like it in Saudi Arabia or not, Iran is our neighbor. Uh, It's been there for thousands of years. It's going to remain there. It will be wonderful to think of cutting off the Arabian Peninsula and pushing it away (laughs) to an area somewhere near Norway or Sweden or something like that. (laughs) But uh, we can't do that. So we have to live with our neighbors, and we have to engage with our neighbors. And that's why when the king uh, called for a summit in Mecca during Ramadan, uh, the main reason for that uh, summit uh, meeting was to find ways between Shia Shia and Sunnah to work together. And uh, Ahmadinejad came, and hopefully something will, uh, will, uh, will come out of there. As far as uh, Miss House's book on Saudi Arabia, I must say I disagree with everything in the book. <laughs> 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 but I think more seriously, I think there are factual uh, errors in the book. One particular one, which was very painful to me, was uh, when Miss House described King Abdullah as murdering the uh, the uh, governor of Riyadh uh, in in the battle that took place when he liberated Riyadh from his uh, enemy uh, hands and uh, so I hope that in the next printing uh, of the book that uh, that description will be changed.
4: What word would you prefer for he didn't. He someone? didn't even
0: kill him personally, he was in the heat of battle and he died. So you choose the word, Ms. <laughs> House.
4: <laughs> it sounds like Benghazi, the heat of battle and he died, but uh, thank you.
3: <clears throat> okay, any other comments from the panel? I just wanted to say on the Iran-Saudi issue, you know, there's there's a historic rivalry between Persians and Arabs, but I don't think that has to be necessarily the case uh, in the future. When the Shah was in power in uh, Iran, yes, Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, were rivals, but it was a different sort of rivalry. I, I think the issue is uh, that the Islamic Republic pursues uh, very sectarian, religiously motivated policies that exacerbate the historic tensions uh, between the uh, Persians and the Arabs. I, I do believe that as long as the Islamic Republic rules Iran, as long as Ayatollah Khamenei rules Iran, that will not change. It will just get worse. Uh, but I think there is a future in which Iranians and Arabs can get along. That's my personal bias. Do you David, think the
4: uh, Shia Sunni uh, sp- issue is really felt among Arabs as much as it is used by leadership?
3: I think it's, it's felt among the elite. Uh, so the leadership of the Islamic Republic, the clergy in Iran, I really don't think the majority of Iranians, and I can speak better for Iranians than Arabs, really care very much about the Sunni-Shia split, uh, especially Iran's uh, very urbanized population. Um, and the, the policies that Tehran pursues uh, are actually pretty unpopular among a lot of Iranians. For example, a few weeks ago, after the rial depreciated, uh, thousands of Iranians went into the streets. You can watch the videos on YouTube. And they uh, shouted, uh, leave Syria alone, think of us. So the sort of policies the Islamic Republic pursues toward Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, Syria are not driven by the population they're driven by the elite the clergy the revolutionary guards etc mm. David do you do you have any comment on I, I that?
2: I just would agree I mean you know for decades we've been saying an Israeli Palestinian peace agreement would help stabilize the region it's um it's just un- I mean and I think the US should continue to sort of somehow try quietly I guess to facilitate that but it's um <coughs> It's such a difficult period. And I, the U.S., our perception here, and I think on reality on the ground, is we do have less influence there. But um, I was in Tunisia um, also this spring. There's still, it's kind of a combination of things. And, and I, there's a frustration for Americans that we, uh, when we try to do something, we're sort of criticized as dictating and being this you know, global behemoth that's doing too much. And then when we step back, there's a complaint that we're not doing anything right um and it's it's a real conundrum and i'm sort of eager to hear and, and the money
1: is the never government. enough or too much or or, or whatever yes. uh, uh, uh i'm i'm uh, hearing you talk about uh, you can't uh, choose your neighbors uh uh, uh president Taliban when i was in baghdad always used to say you can choose your allies and friends but you can't choose your neighbors and uh that is a tough neighborhood back here in the back
2: Yes, a very personal question. I have friends of mine who have their children in Israel right now under a year program, and um, last night the children were evacuated from. Well, they're not children; they're high school kids. were evacuated from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and this morning, of course, there was bombed in Jerusalem. Would you urge them to bring their kids home on a personal level? Would you do that? David, um, I the the there were two rockets this morning. They hit in a in a, the south of jerusalem they didn't harm anyone um you know th- their ability to hit jerusalem with any precision i think is very limited um but if it's if it's it's hard for me to say if they'll feel safer they should leave but i i um you know they've not successfully sort of hit jerusalem proper or or inflicted any casualties uh there were 200 rockets yesterday i think several hundred more today fired out of gaza um, they're, they're very inaccurate weapons, which doesn't mean they're not dangerous, but it's not like they're, these are pinpoint strikes um, in terms of the weaponry they have.
1: Uh, as a, a, a former ambassador uh, and uh, uh, someone who spent 14 months in Baghdad, uh, generally speaking, when there is a paroxysm of violence, the best strategy is to what they call shelter in place. That is to say, stay where you are, stay safe, don't get out on moving around, uh, and, and then appraise the situation. So I would say wait a week uh, before uh, joining a very crowded uh, Tel Aviv airport, uh, trying to stand by for a flight. Uh, and, and then get a sense of, uh, of what the situation is. But I know what you're going through. I, I, the, those of us who were in uh, Baghdad, uh, and there are many of us here who have been there, know that it was, despite whatever risks we had there, it was much tougher on the families at home who had no, nowhere near the information and sense that we had. So Tom, and then uh, Consul General Husseini.
0: Uh, elections matter, as we saw 10 days ago. Uh, You've got an election coming up in Israel. You've got an election coming up in uh, Iran. Uh, what are the consequences of those elections pre and after going to have? Plus, this business in the last 48, 72 hours, is it going to precipitate an Iranian attack on on Iran? Are they going to say Israeli enough attack. is enough? Let's try this.
1: You mean Israeli attack? Israeli attack. Yeah.
2: I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, uh, Israel's got enough to worry about right now just with Hamas. Um, I don't know, and I am i don't know why. Um, we were talking a little bit about it earlier. <laughs> One question is, why did Israel sort of make this initial strike and, and kill this commander? It could have been just an opportunity. They've been trying to get him, and he was going down this road. Um, and I don't know if any other panelists have thoughts on I think everyone
4: sees that the U.S. is completely distracted. Uh I mean, you you can't even get any explanation of what happened on the, the last mass in Benghazi. And now we're trying to keep from diving off the cliff, et cetera. But th- there's just a, a lack of focus or willingness to engage in the Middle East. I think our influence is not as little as we choose to use. But it is much less than it was 10 or 15 years ago because increasingly the actors are not people we've put in power, are supporting, are backing. There's much more, um, if you will, individual liberty and ferment. And um, we're going to have to accept that. But when people sense a vacuum, uh, as I think everyone out there does now, they seek to take advantage of it. The yeah, Iranians, I, the Israelis, uh, everyone? And I think
3: it, there's this key question and sometimes assumption that uh, U.S. power is uh, on the decline in the Middle East. I, I, I would define it in another way. We just live in a changing world. Uh, the Middle East has changed. The, the post-World War One order in the Middle East is crumbling. Uh, the nation states that were created after the First World War are having a very difficult time keeping themselves together, wh- whether it's Syria, Iraq, and now increasingly Jordan. And so the United States does not have the power to reshape history. This is something we have to live with. And I, and I think in certain ways it's beneficial for us. Uh, I, I think the U.S. policy of backing authoritarian regimes in the Arab world is not going to work anymore. It didn't work in Iran, as we saw with the 1979 revolution, and it's not going to work moving forward. And that's just the reality of uh, the Middle East today. Uh, Ambassador Uh, El-Husseini,
1: Consul General of uh, Egypt.
0: Thank you. Uh, Already uh, my my question was answered by His Royal Highness uh, that uh, Hamas uh, is testing Egypt. My question was why not Israel is testing also Egypt? To Mr. Rod. But I have a comment that when you said that uh, uh, President Morsi was uh, uh, becoming tougher on Hamas, you didn't explain why. Uh, can I explain why? Or you? you, you? Sure, please do. Yeah, because yeah, 15, 15 uh, security uh, borders uh, soldiers were slain mm-hmm. in the month of Ramadan in a cold blood by people or by militants who came from uh, Gaza through the tunnels. And we asked Hamas to deliver them. Hamas refused. I'm not disclosing a secret, but this is the truth. Thank you.
1: So, Thank you very so much. Gaza is a threat to Egypt as well. I mean, some groups of Gaza, but not Hamas. Yeah, right. Not Hamas. right the ungoverned space. Um, uh, Levita, did you have a question? I'm sorry. We'll, we'll get. You, we'll come back.
4: I'm actually a little hesitant to ask this question, but one theme I've heard so far Uh and last night is leadership um, and its importance. Uh, How would you grade our State Department in the Middle East only, just focusing on there, uh, number one? Number two, would it be better if our Secretary of State stayed on? And number three, if she does leave, who are the candidates do you think would be most effective (laughs) in the Middle East?
1: Uh, I can see why you were hesitant to ask. That. <laughs> Who wants that one?
2: <laughs> I, can, I can say um, there was a sense in Turkey and, and Tunisia, and I don't know what the feeling is in Egypt, there was disappointment with the follow-through of the administration after the Cairo speech. And it's interesting. Um, Tunisians weren't sort of saying they want, like, massive loan programs Um, there is hope. I mean, I, and I agree that actually the Arab Spring overall is a positive thing and all these young Tunisians want to work, you know, for Google. Um, there was a delegation of American, some of them were Arab Americans, but, um, high tech entrepreneurs that came to Tunis. Dozens of kids came to the event. It was this tremendous thing it generated all this excitement. This is what young Tunisians want to do. They want to be part of the global economy. Um, when I found, I, later on, I found a member of the delegation, um, a uh, Tunisian-American executive at eBay, very successful guy. He told me that this State Department program bringing entrepreneurs it's, its Tunisian across the Middle East has so little funding that the members of the delegation had to pay their own airfares and their own hotel bills. And I do feel like um and I talk about this in my book, you know, they want economic growth, they want modernization, they want to be both Muslim and modern. You heard this from, you know, you hear it in Egypt, you hear it from in Turkey. And the U.S. can't make that happen. It's up to these governments to do it them themselves. But there, I think a bigger economic focus, uh, more private investment were possible by the U.S., this technology stuff would help. And so I did have a sense that um, there was disappointment on the kind of execution level. Not the strategy, not the rhetoric. The Cairo speech was spot on, but there wasn't much follow-through after that.
3: Now, I, I, I would say <laughs> that there is a tendency to view U.S. policy toward the Arab Spring very negatively in this country, especially given that was a major uh, topic during the elections. Uh, But when we look at U.S. policy, there have been some real successes. For example, the United States being willing to engage the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, U.S. officials and analysts and scholars uh, willing to recognize that not all Islamist parties are bad. Uh, that uh, there are nuances, uh, that the Muslim Brotherhood is nothing like al-Qaeda, for example, or the Salafists. So I think uh, there's more of an awareness uh, in the U.S. government or in sections of it uh, that uh, we have to be more flexible and nuanced uh, regarding our policies in the Middle East. It doesn't pertain uh, to all issues. I think uh, the Palestinian issue is still a very important issue, and there's uh, definitely, and this is my impression, a real fatigue with the Palestinian issue. I, I don't think a lot of US officials want to deal with it, uh, but it's going to keep uh, festering. And it is still very important in terms of Middle East politics because uh, there is deep, deep empathy uh, for the Palestinians across the region, uh, whether you're Iranian, Turkish, or Arab. Yes, they use the Palestinian issue for political purposes, but as long as uh, the Palestinian issue is not solved. You're not going to see real stability in the Middle East. It really touches on all the different issues.
4: I think uh, you know, our difficulty is if, if we talked less about democracy and more about individual liberty and responsibility, both at home and abroad, frankly, uh, we'd, be, <coughs> we'd be better off. Um, that we need to keep positioning ourselves abroad as having principles, believing in individual liberty and freedom. Arabs don't want to be little Western Democrats. As he said, they want to be Muslim and modern, many of the people. Certainly a lot of the young Saudis I talked to wanted to be Muslim and modern. They did not want to be little mini copies of our vision of what they ought to want um and i don't think we spend uh, anything like enough money in ga- bringing people abroad here and and uh and americans there all the it is if you will maybe drop in the bucket kind of stuff but it can have big impacts on on individuals um as for who ought to be secretary of state, um, I just would hope the president would pick somebody where there won't be another bloodletting on the Senate floor. You know, <laughs> there've got to be people that can run the State Department that are not going to be as controversial as Susan Rice.
1: Uh, okay. you. <laughs> <clears throat> um. I'm a little bit curious about the um, the money the Saudis and the Qataris are giving in the all around the Middle East and also in uh, in Africa, and um, obviously it's a lot of money. And are you not concerned that this money can go or go sometimes to some groups who are not so friendly to us or to other people? Uh,
4: if you're asking me. Uh yes and yes i mean they give a lot of money to a lot of people some of whom are not even going to wind up being friendly to them um but i think that's kind of the tendency to as i said earlier have a rider on every horse um and you know do hedge <coughs> hedge your bets
1: hmm. The portfolio theory of uh, politics. Huh? Mm. Uh, any other comments on that from David or Ali? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm being told that we need to uh, wrap this up, and uh, I just wanted to do, as, uh, uh, as Stephen was saying this morning, a lightning round um, uh, with a with a question that goes back to the theme of this uh, of this uh, panel on sort of after the Arab Spring or the events that have been called the Arab Spring. Do you think, do each of you think that um, uh, are we better off for what has happened in the last two years in the region? The United States is better off or worse off, and and if so, why? And a bonus question for Ali, is the Islamic Republic better off or worse off Mm -hmm. than we were two years ago? I'll start with Karen.
4: I think we're absolutely better off because moving forward, we're going to be less and less able to dictate events. And it is important that Arab countries begin to take responsibility for the lives they build for themselves and not be able to blame the U.S. for we don't have this, we do do that, our our ruler is bad and supported by you. And, you know, so longer term, I mean, in the short run, it's clearly very... Bumpy, and I think it will get worse before it gets better. But um, you know, we we are fundamentally better off if Arab countries, like others in the world too, also have to learn to eat their own cooking, so to speak.
1: Is <laughs> that better for me? I, I tell you, at <laughs> home, I, I'd rather eat it so anyone else's cooking. I
2: eat my husband's cooking. So I don't <laughs> eat my own. All right, David. <laughs> Um, I agree with Karen. And then also something Ali mentioned earlier. I think we are better off, and I think it's vital that the U.S. sort of hold its nerve, and not let this, this rhetoric about the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamists in general throw us off. There is a huge difference um, between you know, the Muslim Brotherhood and Anada in Tunisia and the AKP and Turkey and Salafis. I mean, they have rejected violence. Um, President Morsi is talking about, you know, investment, a free market economy, he's talking about minority rights. And I think as long as, you know, a a political party in the region is abiding by democratic norms, uh, rejecting violence and supporting international human rights, the United States should consider them a potential ally, whether they're, if they're conservative Muslims. You know, if they're abiding by those norms, you know that's 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 their you know right to be conservative if they want. We shouldn't be Pollyannish if uh, they're you know supporting Hamas or some other violent attack somehow. Then then we should change our policy. and We should not support them. But just because someone is, an, is is an Islamist doesn't mean they're inherently a threat or radical. Again, we we watch them. We monitor their behavior. We see exactly what they're doing in their countries. But this is a real uh, op, you know opportunity it's going to be very rough. This is going to be a very rough period right now, uh, a real test for everyone, and we just sort of need to hold our nerve. It's much better to have these groups governing the countries um, and as Karen said, responsible for the outcomes. can they produce growing economies? can they produce you know better education systems? can they you know be modern and part of the world and and rather than having these autocrats um, um, and I think it's you know it's it's going to be a very scary period, but overall it's it's a positive thing that's happened.
3: Golly, it's going to take several years, if not decades, to know uh, with a with certainty if the Arab Spring has been good for the United States. Uh, I would say though that it, it has been for the most part. Uh, a in terms of containing and deterring Iran, it's an advantage for the United States, uh, and I think. The Islamic Republic is one of the big losers in all of this. And it's not just what's happening in the Arab world. It's due to what has happened in Iran. Uh, for example, uh, before the Arab uprisings, you had the Green Uprising in Iran in 2009 uh, where hundreds of thousands of Iranians, if not more, millions perhaps, um, turned uh, into the streets and they demanded that their vote be counted fairly. Uh, so, and, I th- and I think since then... Uh, The Islamic uh, Republic's brand has really diminished. Iran's support for Syria has really damaged its influence in the Middle East. So I see all of those as positives, but I think it's important to realize that uh, the Middle East has changed and is changing, and then U.S. policy has to change uh, with it. And uh, U.S. support for authoritarian regimes is not going to work in the long run because authoritarian regimes in the Middle East will not last in the long run. You can't educate your people and give them access to the internet and technology and expect them not to question the rulers. And when we look at uh, the Middle East, this, this is the case in almost all the countries, whether it's Iran or Syria uh, or even Jordan. Uh, the, you know the, There are certain expectations. There are certain democratic norms that have taken root in the Middle East. And I think it's essential for the United States to realize this in the long term.
1: So uh, the consensus of this panel anyway is that the the United States is better off uh, as a result of the last two years. But time will tell, right? You, you, <laughs> and we need to hold our nerve.
4: Tighten your seat belt. And Tighten keep your flying. seat belt.
1: All right, <laughs> keep flying. And hold you, our nerve and a little bit more
3: resources. If you if you rely on CNN and Fox News to form impression, <laughs> <the> <laughs> it's going to look pretty bad. We
1: don't do that. We don't rely on CNN and Fox News here at Rand. Okay. Well, thank you very much for uh, for taking part. Thank you. This
0: presentation is provided as a public service by the Rand Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at Rand. Visit us online at www.rand.org slash events.